This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Save the date for the grand reopening on May 14th and 15th after the most extensive and transformative renovation in its nearly 200-year history. It's your history museum, your story. Details at virginiahistory.org. This podcast is also sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where digital resources reach nearly 4 million people yearly, and collections of more than 130 million items tell the stories of Virginians. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Welcome to episode six of season six of the How We Got Here podcast. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa. I can't tell you, it's such a joy and a pleasure going on your podcast listening walks, workouts, and drives with you. Thank you for all the comments on social media. Thank you so much for listening. For once, we have a shorter episode for you, but don't worry, you are not being cheated. We have a doozy of a bonus episode coming after the end of this season to make it up to you. So let's get going. We are turning back the clock on the week of April 11th through the 17th. He dedicated his life to freedom. Political, religious, educational, but he also failed in freedom too. He enslaved people, and not every man and woman was left equal after he declared our country's independence in one of the more famous documents of America's short history. Thomas Jefferson, a defiant spokesperson for democracy, the third president of the United States, was born April 13, 1743, at Shadwell Plantation in Central Virginia. Thomas Jefferson was a little bit of a nerd in his youth. That word probably didn't exist then, but I think today he would be considered a bit of a, a geek, a nerd, he, very studious fellow, but not unpopular with his friends. Before we dive deep into the beginnings of a man synonymous with America's founding we must talk to you about another first-time guest. My name is Dana Kelly. I am a guide at Monticello. I've been there just short of 17 years, giving tours. She's also an amateur historian. When I was a kid, if they gave me a choice of Disney World or Colonial Williamsburg, I would have said Colonial Williamsburg. <laughs> and so I am not a professional historian. In fact, I lived in New York City for many years in the travel industry. But when my family moved to Charlottesville, I knew I, I was drawn to Monticello and applied and got the job because they're really interested in guides who have a passion for the subject and a willingness to talk to people. And just like with James Madison, as we told you about earlier this season, Thomas Jefferson's birthday has a bizarre backstory. It's celebrated on April 13th, but he was really born on April 2nd. So when Jefferson was a little boy, we switched to the um, Gregorian calendar. 11 days disappeared from the years, hence his birthday is now celebrated on April 13th. But on his tombstone, it says April 2nd. 
I'm a fan of April 2nd, but we can say April 13th. <laughs> Most folks think he was born at Monticello, but that plantation didn't exist yet. He was born at Shadwell. That's named after the parish in London where his mother was born. Jefferson's father, Peter Jefferson, he's at least third generation Virginian and family tradition says his ancestors came from Wales near a mountain called Snowdon. But his mother was the daughter of a Virginia merchant who had business in England, where he met his wife and where Jefferson's mother was born. Her name was uh, Jane Randolph. You're going to hear that name Randolph a lot. You probably hear that a lot around Williamsburg, one of the most influential, prestigious colonial families in Virginia. So she's one of the Randolphs. And she was born in a parish in London called Shadwell. So they named their home farm Shadwell. Shadwell still exists. Thomas Jefferson Foundation owns that land. It's at the base of Monticello Mountain. Uh, the house burnt down during Jefferson's lifetime, so there's no house there. But it's located on the Rivanna River, which flows to the James River. That's the highway, so to speak, to get your tobacco to market. So most planters built along rivers. But Peter Jefferson owned this little mountain where Thomas Jefferson and his best friend Dabney Carr would often hunt small game or explore. And we're still part of England and English law says the oldest son gets everything. So he always knew he'd inherit his father's land and the enslaved people. And he dreamed of a house on top of that mountain because the views, you can see 50 miles from all directions. So he grew up at the bottom of the mountain but as an adult, he's going to build at the top of the mountain. That mountain is in what's now called Albemarle County, just outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, in the Piedmont region at the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. His father had gotten a land grant out here in essentially the wilderness. There weren't too many English settlers out here. Of course, the Monacan people had been here for thousands of years, but the English people were starting to settle the region in the late 1730s. He got a land grant for about a thousand acres. And then there's a story that he had a friend called William Randolph, who sold him another 200 acres for the biggest bowl of Mr. Weatherborn's Arak punch. So <laughs> some famous tavern in Williamsburg where he liked the punch. In other words, land was really out there for the taking. Shadwell was developed into a 3,000-acre tobacco farm. But I don't want you to imagine they're living this sort of rough woodsman kind of life. Peter and Jane Jefferson had been members of the Tidewater elite and the gentry, and they took those customs and manners to Shadwell. There's an excellent book by Susan Kern called The Jeffersons at Shadwell. She describes the material culture that archaeologists have found where Shadwell once stood. It's fine china and glassware, and they had musical instruments, scientific instruments, hundreds of books. Peter Jefferson had an extensive library. 
The Jeffersons had two daughters and then their firstborn son, Thomas, on April 13th or the 2nd, whichever you prefer. There's no primary source about the day he's born. In fact, Jefferson, when he's quite old, I believe he's in his 70s, he starts to write an autobiography. Mainly, he says it's for his family's reference and for his own reference, thinking back. And it's really as beautiful and brilliant as a writer as he was. This autobiography is very dry. It's just fact after fact after fact. He doesn't emote at all, really. I don't think there's any family history about the day he was born. You know, childbirth was so dangerous back then. His mother had 10 children and only lost two. So that was kind of unusual. I get the feeling his childbirth wasn't too traumatic. It's believed that he was probably nursed by an enslaved woman because his mother kept having babies so quickly. His mother is a bit of a mystery. We don't know a lot about her or how Thomas felt about her. Some historians are trying to dispel that myth that he wasn't close to his mother because he doesn't write about her much. When she died in his memorandum book, it just says something like, my mother died today, and that's about it. And no letters survived between them. But we know that he burned the letters when his wife died, he burned all the letters between them. So it's possible they were, they're personal. And maybe he destroyed the letters between himself and his mother. She was described by other people as outgoing and intelligent and friendly. She is a bit of a, a mystery. We don't know nearly as much about him as about Jefferson's father, whom he seemed to idolize. This man had a reputation for strength and endurance that was legendary. He and Joshua Fry surveyed the colony of Virginia for the British crown and made the first map of the colony of Virginia. And he would regale his children with stories about that adventure. Jefferson's father, Peter, was also away for long stretches of time. He was a land speculator and a land surveyor, and he died when Thomas was only 14. I think that helps explain why he also idolized his father as well. He hadn't really hit those <laughs> obstreperous teen years when children might separate a little bit from their parents. There's a story the family would tell about when he was a little younger, when he was 10. I guess his father had encouraged him. He knew how to use a gun and how to hunt and how to, of course, ride a horse. And to sort of, as a, a rite of passage, he was to go out on his own in the wilderness and shoot a turkey and bring home a turkey. And he admitted years later, and he wandered around and round and never found a, a wild turkey, but he spotted a turkey penned, a wild turkey in a pen. Apparently he said he tied it up with his garter and shot it and brought it home <laughs> to please his father. His first childhood memory at age three was of a 50-mile horseback ride he took with his father's slave into the Virginia wilderness. He wrote about it in his dry autobiography. And he remembered being carried on a pillow by a slave on horseback over a long distance. And we now know that was the trip to Tuckahoe because his father's good friend was William Randolph, who also happened to be his mother's cousin. William Randolph's wife had died. He had some young children. 
And in his will, he made Peter Jefferson the guardian of his children, and he did die. So Peter Jefferson moves his whole family to Tuckahoe until William Randolph's son comes of age and can run the plantation. So they are actually living there for seven years. And so the first schoolhouse that Thomas Jefferson attended is at Tuckahoe. That schoolhouse is still there. And if Tuckahoe sounds familiar to listeners in Central Virginia, it's exactly what you're thinking. The schoolhouse is in Henrico's far west end, near the Goochland County line, just off River Road. You may have noticed there's also another theme in Jefferson's early life, the enslaved people all around him. More than 60 lived and worked at Shadwell, tilling his father's tobacco fields, cooking and serving the family's meals, even caring for Jefferson and his siblings. I think it's attributed to Aristotle. He says, give me the child at seven and I'll show you the man. Jefferson's boyhood in the gentry, in sort of a privileged family. His father was in the House of Burgesses. He was the county surveyor. He was the justice of the peace. So these are the leading family in his community. So that's the example that Jefferson's growing up with. Dana Kelly quotes from the book by Susan Kearns, The Jeffersons at Chadwell, for further explanation of what it was like growing up in this world. She says, Our fascination with Jefferson lies in trying to understand the intellectual capacity that shaped a nation in world history and also allowed him to be a connoisseur of so many things that remain interesting to us today. Books, wine, horticulture, architecture, language, the list goes on. The finely appointed house at Shadwell, the expert servants, attentive parents, enabled the natural inquisitiveness of the son. Jefferson also embodied something unimaginable for us today, an exploiter of enslaved humans laboring in the fields and also those dressing, washing, and caressing him. Shadwell taught Jefferson that a well-ordered landscape and a well-ordered household freed him for exercises of the mind. Freedom of the mind at the cost of freedom of others. We do think, and we tell this story on our tours sometimes, that his first boyhood friend was actually an enslaved boy named Jupiter. We believe his last name was Evans because his son's last name was Evans. Jupiter and Thomas were both born at Shadwell in 1743. Same year, same place. But by law, of course, Jupiter Evans' mother was a slave. We don't know her name yet. The free and enslaved kids, they're growing up together. Until they're nine or 10 years old, we think that Jupiter Evans would have been one of his playmates. And we can only use our imaginations, wonder what they were like as little boys before one realized one was, could be the owner of the other. When does that realization start? I can tell you what Jefferson wrote when he was in his 40s in Notes on the State of Virginia, maybe looking back to his boyhood. He says the whole commerce between master and slave is unremitting despotism on the one part and degrading submission on the other. Our children see this and learn to imitate it. In other words, what were he and Thomas and Jupiter learning by watching their parents' behavior toward one another? 
from toddlerhood on, this is very much an influence in Jefferson's life. Over his lifetime, Jefferson owned more than 600 enslaved people. These men, women, and children were integral to running Shadwell in his early years and Monticello later on. He was born into it, but never stepped away. Dana says Jupiter was a constant figure in Jefferson's life. All the time when they're in Williamsburg, Thomas Jefferson will go to the College of William and Mary, and by then, Jupiter Evans was his manservant or his valet. And in his account book, there's note after note of Jefferson borrowing money from him and sending him on errands and having him pay bills and settle debts. So there's that kind of data about Jupiter Evans, but nothing more personal. Shortly after Jefferson got married, his father-in-law died and he inherited another 135 men, women, and children. And one of those women was Elizabeth Hemings. And at that point, she had 10 children. And from that moment on, it was always one of her sons or grandsons who would be Jefferson's manservant. And Jupiter Evans was reassigned to take care of the thoroughbred horses. So his job assignment changed. And then we do know about 15 years after that, there was a sickness going around Monticello. Few enslaved people died, including uh, Jupiter, Evans, his wife, and one of their sons. And Jefferson makes only one notation about his reaction to that. He finds out through a letter. It was 1799 because he was Secretary of State. He writes about Jupiter Evans, I am sorry for his loss and sensible that he leaves a void in my domestic administration I cannot fill. That's all he says. In 1757, when Thomas Jefferson turned 14, he was sent to the Reverend Mallory boarding school. And that's where another young man makes an impression, Dabney Carr, who Dana mentioned earlier. I think Jefferson had a, a large capacity for making friends, lifelong friends. And that's where he meets Dabney Carr. And there are a few stories that survive. There's one story his grandchildren used to tell. Jefferson had a slow pony and Dabney Carr had a fast pony. So they organized a race, a horse race, and Jefferson set the date for February 30th. So of course, lo and behold, the date never came. <laughs> you know, just because there are only 28 days in February, 29 on a leap year, just making sure you guys got the joke because it, um, totally went over my head during the interview. <laughs> when they were boys, they would travel up to the top of the mountain that Jefferson will later call Monticello, much later. And they loved to read books and study under this particular oak tree, nearly at the top of the mountain. And they promised one another, whoever died first, the other would bury them under that oak tree. And Dabney Carr eventually married Jefferson's sister, but he didn't live very long. He died at 30, and he is buried under that tree. The tree died, tree is gone, but Dabney Carr's is the first grave, and Jefferson's tombstone is, is right next to it. 
And that's still the family cemetery for descendants of Jefferson and his wife. But it just started by those two, two boys making that promise to one another. Jefferson was described in his teens as shy and awkward. He was very tall for his age, thin with reddish hair and freckled skin. He talks all his life about his gratitude that he learned Greek and Latin from Reverend Maori, who was his teacher at the boarding school from age 14 to 16, where he met Dabney Carr. He called him a correct and classical scholar. And he writes when he's much older, in his 50s, he writes, I thank on my knees him who directed my early education for having put into my possession this rich source of delight, the knowledge of Greek and Latin, and I would not exchange it for anything which I could then have acquired and have not since acquired. And he says that in various ways again and again as he ages. So his way of relaxing is reading a book, Aristotle in the original Greek kind of thing. We've mentioned before that Jefferson heads off to the College of William and Mary. He was just 16 years old, but his experience will be nothing like that of a typical teen. Surviving letters from that time place us inside his mind. And he says, this is why he tells his guardian he should go to college. As long as I stay at the mountains, the loss of one fourth of my time is inevitable by companies coming here and detaining me from school. And likewise, my absence will be, in a great measure, put a stop to so much company. That means lessen the expenses of the estate and housekeeping. This author, Alan Taylor, who wrote the book Jefferson's Education, he opens with that letter. He makes an astute observation. He reckons that Thomas Jefferson was the first and maybe the last teenage boy who will ever argue to go to college because there's too much partying at home. Jefferson arrives at William and Mary in March of 1760. That will be a huge, huge influence on his life. This is where the Enlightenment comes in and Jefferson's love of science. A teacher at the school, Dr. William Small from Scotland, will also leave a mark. And Jefferson credits him with fixing the destinies of my life. He was the only lay teacher at William and Mary because it was an Anglican school. He was the professor of mathematics and uh, Jefferson called him a man profound in the most useful branches of science, happy talent of communication, gentlemanly manners, an enlarged and liberal mind, and happily for me, became soon attached to me and made me his daily companion. I sort of see Dr. Small, William Small, as a sort of a father figure for Jefferson. Jefferson was a very bright student. Most would consider him as quite serious. <laughs> He's kind of head and shoulders above most of the other young guys at William and Mary who were not serious students at all, apparently. Called himself a hard student. He does tell his grandson many years later, you know, he, he hung around a little bit with the, you know, the boys who were there just to carouse and hassle the town's people and gamble and, and drink. And said, he said, but I, I didn't stick with them. And he was, I'm paraphrasing, but he was glad he didn't because he, he could have easily gone down that path. 
but instead he's hanging out with William Small and George Wythe. His best friend at William and Mary seems to be this fellow called John Page, who lived at Rosewell Plantation. This was one of the grandest houses in Virginia, I'm told. Jefferson was a frequent guest. Also, in many of the earliest surviving letters, he's writing to John Page. Dana Kelly reads us one of those letters. Now, this involves a young lady called Rebecca Burrell, whom Jefferson was 19. And I think he's kind of a late bloomer. But at 19, he, 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 he gets this serious crush on this girl in Williamsburg, which, by the way, he and John Page often called Devilsburg. But her name was Rebecca Burrell. But Jefferson is at his brother-in-law's house at Christmas. And he writes to his friend, Dear Page, this very day to others, the day of greatest mirth and jollity sees me overwhelmed with more and greater misfortunes than have befallen a descendant of Adam for these thousand years past, I am sure. And perhaps after accepting Job since the creation of the world. So that's another thing you'll find about Jefferson. He speaks in hyperbole. <laughs> he, he exaggerates a little. And he's telling his friend he is more miserable than anyone, maybe except for Job, since the creation of the world. And that's because the night before, as he slept, not only did the rats come into his room and eat his minuets, his copies of minuets, uh, they destroyed one of his socks and his garters. So the rats are nibbling away while he's sleeping and there's a leak in the roof and rain came through the roof and ruined his watch, his pocket watch. So that was bad enough. But inside the pocket watch, Rebecca Burrell had given him a little cutout, a silhouette of her face and the rain had destroyed it. So that's why his heart is broken uh, that Christmas day. He says, this cried I was the last stroke Satan had in reserve for me. He knew I cared not for anything else he could do to me and was determined to try this last most fatal expedient. And then he goes on and on in Latin, which I cannot pronounce. As extraordinary as he was, he's a typical teenager in many ways who couldn't get up enough courage to talk to a girl. Just to finish that story, I'll tell you that a year later, I don't know where Paige is, Jefferson's back in Williamsburg, he writes to his friend, he starts out again, in the most melancholy fit that ever any poor soul was, I sit down to write to you. Last night, as merry as agreeable company and dancing with Belinda, which Belinda was his code name for Rebecca. So they're dancing in the Apollo. I never could have thought the succeeding son would have seen me so wretched as I now am. I was prepared to say a great deal. I had dressed up in my own mind such thoughts as occurred to me in as moving language as I knew how and expected to have performed in a tolerably credible manner. But good God, when I had an opportunity of venting them, a few broken sentences uttered in great disorder and interrupted with pauses of uncommon length were the two visible marks of my strange confusion. In other words, he never could speak to her and make much sense. And uh, she shortly thereafter married someone else. He was a brilliant writer, but not, you know, he was no Patrick Henry. <laughs> Let's put it that way. 
Ah, see, my point proven. It always comes back to Patrick Henry every season. This is where I'd usually play my Patrick Henry remix for you. But since we featured him in a prior episode this season, I'll spare you. Anyway, Thomas Jefferson would soon leave college and hold his first office, but it's these early years that help tell us how he became the man we know today, with a memorial in D.C. who birthed this country and started the University of Virginia. We would call him a man of the Enlightenment, right? He's not a man who put a lot of faith in superstition or dogma. He put faith in the scientific method. You test things, you learn things, you observe things, and slowly you'll have human progress. That's how you improve the human condition. And that's really evident throughout his life as well. April 13th. 1743, the third president is born at the bottom of a mountain just outside Charlottesville, Virginia. Thomas Jefferson would grow up surrounded by the institution of slavery, freeing him to study music, art, science, religion, and math. While others remained in chains, his Monticello was built on that mountain as he rose to the top of a new nation. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written and edited by me, Rachel DePompa. Thank you to digital director Kate Albright and executive producer Colton Weekly for helping keep this little podcast going all these years. Thank you to our guest this week, Dana Kelly, a guide at Monticello. Next week is our usual behind-the-sounds episode where Kate, Colton, and I break down how we brought you this season, the stories behind the making of this podcast. And don't miss our bonus episode to follow the end of the season with one of our favorite longtime guests, Mike Gorman. And finally, there was a moment in Virginia's history that we were going to feature in this episode on April 16th. It's actually a date in history I have purposely avoided with this podcast. I've moved or even started seasons, so I didn't have to tell the story. I was there all those years ago on that blustery, flurry-filled morning on April 16, 2007, when a gunman walked into a classroom building on Virginia Tech's campus and killed 32 innocent people. I was reporting in Blacksburg for WDBJ. It was the single most life-changing moment of my career. Covering that tragedy changed me as a person and a journalist. I really wanted to walk you all through that day, but in the end, I still wasn't there mentally. Maybe one day. But what I can do is honor the lives of the 32 we lost. Ross Alamadine, a 20-year-old English major from Massachusetts. Christopher James Bishop, a 35-year-old instructor teaching German in Norris Hall. Brian Bloom was a graduate student working toward his master's degree in water resources. 22-year-old Ryan Clark was a senior. His friends called him Stack. 
He was a triple major in biology, English, and psychology. Austin Cloyd was from Blacksburg. She was an international studies major. Her father also taught at Tech. Jocelyn Couture Novak was a French instructor at Virginia Tech. Kevin Granado was 45, a professor of engineering science and mechanics. He had served in the military. 24-year-old Matthew Gwaltney was a graduate student in civil and environmental engineering. He was from Chester, Virginia. Caitlin Hammerin was just 19, a talented musician and sophomore majoring in international studies and French. 27-year-old Jeremy Herbstritt was a graduate student in civil engineering. Family members said he was a good storyteller and a fun-loving person. Rachel Elizabeth Hill was 18, a freshman from Henrico County, Virginia. Her pastor said, the world has lost one of its brightest prospects. Emily Hersher was 19, also a freshman, majoring in animal and poultry sciences. 22-year-old Jarrett Lane was a senior studying civil engineering. He was the valedictorian of his high school. Matthew Laporte was 20 years old from New Jersey. He was majoring in university studies. 20-year-old Henry Lee was a freshman majoring in computer engineering. He came to the U.S. from China in elementary school. Liviu Labrescu was a 76-year-old Holocaust survivor. He was teaching engineering science and mathematics. Students say Labrescu tried to keep the gunmen from entering the classroom so they could jump out of the windows and save themselves. G.V. Loganathan was 51, a professor of civil environmental engineering. He was born in southern India, and he was a professor at Tech since 1982. Partahi Torowin was a civil engineering doctoral student from Indonesia. Lauren McCain was 20, from Hampton, Virginia, an international studies major. 22-year-old Daniel O'Neill was an engineering graduate student from Rhode Island. Juan Ramon Ortiz Ortiz was a 26-year-old graduate student in civil engineering. He was originally from Puerto Rico. Minal Panchal was 26, a graduate student from India. He wanted to be an architect. Daniel Perha Sueva was 21, a native of Peru. He was majoring in international relations. Erin Nicole Peterson was a freshman majoring in international studies. She was a basketball standout from Westfield High School in Chantilly, Virginia. Michael Pohl Jr. was 23 years old from New Jersey, a biology major close to graduating. 23-year-old Julia Pride was a graduate student from New Jersey. Friends say she always tried to make a difference herself rather than try to ask someone else to do something. Mary Karen Reed was just 19 years old from Annandale, Virginia. She hadn't picked a major yet. She was a freshman. 
18-year-old Rima Samaha was also a freshman from Centerville, Virginia. She loved acting, dance, and drama, and was studying French. Walid Mohammed Shahalan was from Egypt, a doctoral student in civil engineering. He was married for three years with a one-year-old son. Leslie Sherman was a sophomore, majoring in history and international relations. She wanted to join the Peace Corps after college. Maxine Shelley Turner was a senior from Vienna, Virginia, majoring in chemical engineering. Nicole White was 20 years old, a junior, majoring in international studies. She loved animals and worked in the summers as a lifeguard. Dedicated to those 32 we lost and to all of those who live with the scars of that day.